Review Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Seville in Spain. Uh, and I'm joined today by my two usual guests, uh, Jasmine Baba in Germany and John Sullivan in Ireland. Uh, Jasmine, how are things in Germany? Um, it's rainy and gloomy Easter Monday here, but at least we've got club football back and Champions League back. Absolutely. It brightens every, uh, every week, doesn't it? Uh, John, how are you in Galway? Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's it's raining now, but I think I still have the residual impact of the three days of sun that preceded it. It's like that episode of uh, The Simpsons where Mr. Burns is all happy after getting his injections. So that's kind of like me. I bring you peace and I bring you love. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we just had the international break, of course, uh, for the last two weeks or so, kind of no club football. Um, how did you find the international break, Jasmine? Uh, were you intrigued by the international football or were you very much focused on a return to club football? Um, very much on the return of club football for me. I have to admit that I took a lovely break in the middle of um, while the internationals were going ahead. But um, I did see a few unsavoury tweets by people with um, maybe a smaller country should be entered into pre-qualifying for these things and uh, that really angered me. I mean, I'm no fan of internationals, but I mean, you had North Macedonia beat Germany, for instance, and, you know, every one of the... I, it feels like after the, some of those controversial tweets came out, you saw loads of big results from smaller nations. And I think coronavirus has really tipped those leagues where there's so many games into smaller nations' hands. So, you know, the the kind of suggestion of pre-qualifying is really, really not nice when it comes to smaller nations. Absolutely. And John, I know as a fellow Irishman, <laughs> we're not really in either camp. We have expectations, but we're not definitely not a big nation. Um, but how did you feel about that Gary Lineker tweet where he suggested that uh, smaller nations have to play pre-qualifiers to play against the bigger boys? And it's such nonsense. I mean, inherently, there's always going to be like a disparity between qualities of international teams because that's just the makeup of it. I mean, North Macedonia, for example, can't go out and sign players like a like a club can. They they really have to work in within certain parameters. So I, I thought it come from a place of real arrogance because like you'd swear England have won anything in the last forty years. So uh, I, I felt it was a strange comment, and then surely like uh, these smaller nations would improve anyway based off playing against the Englands and the Spains and the Germanys or whoever. So I felt it all around it was just such a strange, strange comment. Absolutely. And what do you make of Ireland's? I mean, obviously it was a very, very poor international break for Ireland and Stephen Kenny. Um, what are your kind of primary takeaways from it? Do you feel completely dispirited? Do you feel that the expectations there are too high? Um, do you have any hope for the future of Irish football or what? Um, I think expectations are too high because you you can you can you cannot look at Ireland outside the context of the Champagne football years as they're known and the absolute damage that was done to Ireland uh, in terms of their footballing structures and in terms of the League of Ireland and financially and you know the the chickens are coming home to roost people people may make Stephen Kenny a patsy for it and who knows he might eventually pay with his job but he has a very, very weakened hand to work with, unfortunately. And uh, I think a lot of what he's trying to do is very admirable. He's trying to play progressive, modern football after years of Ireland really playing 
you know, archaic style of tactics, like relying on long balls and set pieces and sitting in deep block. So at least he's, he's trying something, but uh, his hands are really tight behind his back. I think, uh, I think we might have a painful period of years in the short to medium term, but uh, hopefully in the long term, we, we, we can get it, we can get our act together because like we have produced great players in the past. It's not like we can't do it, but we really need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and, we, we really need to restructure our association from top to bottom because uh, demonstrably it's not working. Absolutely. Um, but bringing it back to club football, I'd like to begin with somebody who was definitely very active over the international break, um, Erling Haaland, whose father, Alf Ingeland and Mino Raiola were seemingly traveling all over Europe, meeting with the, the biggest clubs in the continent to discuss um, the future of this 20-year-old uh, young Norwegian marksman um, Bruce Dortmund lost 2-1 to Eintracht Frankfurt at home, uh, Jasmine, over the weekend to really kind of leave their Champions League hopes for next season you know, in quite a bad place. Um, and they certainly don't face an easy uh, Champions League quarterfinal um, forthcoming. Uh, what were your thoughts on the results and also of the kind of behaviour of Alf Inchaland and Raiola travelling all over Europe, meeting with clubs so openly? They should have their own like TV show, a bit like Rick Stein in the UK that like, travels around just eating something food around the country. I think that would be a great watch on Netflix. But the idea that it came on and um, this news broke out on April Fool's Day was just the epitome of football media at the time. People were trying to verify if it was some kind of joke that um, Holland's father and Mina Raiola were going to Barcelona meeting with them um, for Haaland supposedly exiting Dortmund this summer. Um, but yeah, as you said, it was uh, fourth versus, I think Dortmund was fifth at the time of uh, it being played. The points are basically so tight in the run for European spot, but it was a very important match for them to get back into it. And for a little while, you think, oh, you know, 1-1, this is it, they can get the upper hand. But unfortunately, they were broken by a very defiant Eintracht Frankfurt and and, uh, Andre Silva, you know, man of the Bundesliga, that's not Lewandowski this season. Um, And even more goals than Holland at the moment now. Um, He's been doing fantastically well. And um, now they're seven points off fourth place. They've got the same amount of points as Bayer Leverkusen in sixth, so they're only in the Europa League spot on goal difference. And it's not only that they might miss out on Champions League this season, but they could even drop into the Conference League if they're not careful. Um, we saw against uh, Kuhn, the draw against Kuhn, that Holland um, was really upset and angry about, you know, losing, uh, not winning that game to get them back up into the Champions League this season. And I don't think he's any happier. And with what we've seen of his father and agent going around, we have to just take into the fact that a club is going to put the money up for him, for him to leave if he doesn't get Champions League next season. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm interested about Andre Silva because, I mean, obviously Haaland is the kind of highly touted player uh, this summer, it seems, and also Kylian Mbappe. Um, although he obviously 
maybe slightly more expensive and seems to be between uh, Liverpool and Real Madrid, whereas Haaland seems to be more of kind of an open market situation. Um, but do you think that, you know, obviously some clubs would have to miss out on these two players? Um, could Andre Silva be a good kind of alternative for a super club looking to bring in a top quality striker uh, this summer, do you think? I mean, uh, his agent, I believe, is Mendes. So, you know, a Tottenham club or Wolves even. I know Wolves are slightly down in the Premier League, but, you know, the Portuguese link is always going to help him get to an even bigger club. The only thing is, is if there's quite a few changes at Frankfurt at the moment, so it's very unlikely to say if these people will stay around for a Champions League outing next year, if they end up in the Champions League places, or, you know, they'll need to sell for funds. Um, so uh, the sporting director, Bobic, is leaving Frankfurt at the end of the season. There's been some rumours about Hutter, but he's manager Hutter, but he's come out and said he's staying. Um, and, you know, they're on a good run. I hope they can keep most of their team for the champions next season because they're a fantastically built team. They're entertaining and we thought they might struggle a bit defensively with um, David Abrahams going back to Argentina, but they found this 21-year-old tutor from Brazil, and he's fitting in the left side of their back three perfectly. He kept Holland in his back pocket all of uh, Saturday. So, yeah, the really exciting team there at the moment. Uh, Manchester City beat Leicester City 2-0 uh, at the weekend and they'll be facing Dortmund tomorrow evening in the Champions League quarterfinal first leg. Um, what's the view from Germany, Jasmine, uh, regarding this tie? Is there kind of a sense of almost uh, resignation about it or is there any kind of optimism there? I think in these games there are always optimism. It's um, a two-leg tie and we've seen anything can happen. Uh they must have been watching uh, Man United's game against Man City where, you know, they pressed high, got a few things going their way, won a penalty and just closed Man City out for the rest of the game. And I think Dortmund will be planning to start off with high intensity and try and grab something and then trying to close Man City out. But that being said, everyone's very realistic over here. They saw how Man Pep Guardiola's Man City close down Borussia Mönchengladbach and there's um, some optimism but a lot of realism with it but everyone thinks now that the Champions League is the only way to get back into the Champions League next season so yeah a lot of high intensity I think we'll see from that team. And John for you what do you make of this Man City performance and how confident would you be for them heading into this kind of you know pivotal stage of the Champions League season? Yeah, I'd be pretty confident of them progressing. I mean, Dortmund do have a lot of firepower. It remains to be seen whether uh, Sancho might make the second leg, but regardless, they have Haaland and they have um, they have Gio Reyna and they have a lot of pace and they have a lot of attacking threat. But I think they're 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 a very flawed team. They have a soft underbelly, and you saw City against Leicester just to touch on that as well. They they rested several players, like Sterling and Foden, and they still managed to beat the team that are third in the English Premier League, uh, I think, quite comfortably. So I couldn't see anything bar a City uh, a city win in this, and I would say comfortably. So, But uh, I think there's also the subplot of Erling Haaland, so that's something to watch out for. Perhaps he might play with an extra bit of uh, motivation to try and 
put himself into the shop window either for for City or for another club. Uh, I, I could see him scoring, but certainly I think City will win this by uh, by a comfortable margin. As much as you know, football does produce weird results from time to time. Absolutely, absolutely. In Spain, Real Madrid beat Ibar two 0 uh, to kind of really put the pressure on. Atletico Madrid and Barcelona in the title race. They are now second, having leapfrogged Barcelona. Um, and, you know, things are very, very tight there. Uh, they're facing uh, Liverpool uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on this game from a Liverpool perspective? I mean, Madrid are kind of very much in that mode. They have nine games left in La Liga this season. Uh, they have nothing else to play for aside from La Liga and the Champions League. Uh, Karen Benzema scored the weekend, as did Marco Asensio. Asensio has a habit of scoring really important goals in uh, the latter stages of the Champions League ever since he made his debut um, for Real Madrid. Uh, so the kind of feeling there is that he could maybe do something. Um, Madrid aren't playing spectacular football, but they are playing very competent football. And they are Real Madrid but of course, Liverpool, having beaten Arsenal 3-0 the weekend, are obviously in a, maybe in a resuscitation themselves and could maybe put together something strong coming into the end of the season post-international break. Uh, yeah. So what are your thoughts on this game, John, from both, both sides? I, I, found it, I find this one very hard to call because, like you mentioned, it isn't a vintage Real Madrid team in terms of their style of play or their attacking prowess, but they are very functional. They've won nine of their last 11 games there. They're quite defensively solid. I think the loss of Sergio Ramos will hurt them, though, because he he's such a he's such a big game animal. He has so much muscle memory in Champions League knockout ties. So I think that that will be a blow to them. But um, I think one thing that also might stand in Liverpool's kind of favour is the fact that apart from Karim Benzema, they don't they don't really have a regular source of goals. So their second highest scorer is Casemiro with six. So there's not really many people pitching in from midfield or from the wide areas um of course Eden Hazard will be back and a lot of people might scoff at that and they'll think you know Eden Hazard has been an unmitigated bust for Madrid but his record against Liverpool and not only for Chelsea is absolutely sensational he has seven goals and 18 appearances and two assists and you know in, during his time in England and uh, even in France with Lille he was regularly sensational against Liverpool so that that could be that could be another another threat they have but uh I think that both teams will kind of fancy themselves in this somewhat because, yeah, like I mentioned, it's not a vintage Real Madrid team, but this is still a Liverpool team that are shorn off three of their best centre halves. And for as well as Ozan Kabak and Nat Phillips have done as a, as a partnership, they haven't faced anybody near as good as uh, Karim Benzema, who has 23 goals this season. So uh, that that will be an interesting kind of subplot to see whether or not they can they can handle him well. Uh, if you put a gun to my head, I think Liverpool might just do it because they have Jota back and they suddenly have they suddenly have packed more punch in attack. But it, it's so so difficult to call. I find absolutely Benzema with seven goals uh, in seven games. Uh, sorry, having scored in seven games consecutively for the first time in his career, quite a remarkable record. Um, but watching this game, John, the three nil uh, at the weekends. Um, how good a performance was it from Liverpool? Or was it just a case of a bad performance from Arsenal, do you think? Uh, maybe a touch of both because Liverpool really controlled the ball and they also controlled the space. And like every time Arsenal tried to launch an attack, like they were absolutely smothered by uh, Liverpool's counter-press. I thought Fabinho really personified Liverpool's performance. He was sensational off the ball. He kept snuffing out attacks before they had the chance to develop. And then on the ball... He was also very, very effective. He got an assist for Salah, of course. So, and I think largely 
he has been the catalyst for Liverpool's improvement, moving him to midfield. Because losing Van Dijk, Matip and Gomez was bad enough. But then Liverpool compounded that by having to move Fabinho to centre-half. And who, by the way, was quite effective in that role. But it also weakened the midfield because he's comfortably their best defensive midfielder. So it was two areas weakened in the team as such. So I think his performance has really, really been a turning point for Liverpool. And then he's a former Real Madrid player. He, I think he only made one senior appearance for them. Um, so it'll be it'll be a nice moment for him as well, I'm sure, to maybe to maybe right some old wrongs against against a team that never really gave him a chance. So in this game, Liverpool were richly deserving uh, winners. Jota has been sublime this season. He has 18 goals for club and country, despite the fact that he missed three months of football. He is in an unbelievable hot streak of form, left foot, right foot, head. He 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 has any amount of uh, weapons in his arsenal. He can score from what seems like even half chances. So... If, if Liverpool do end up winning something this season, which still is unlikely to me, or finishing in the top four, I think they will look upon two players as being, you know, the real catalyst for that. And that would be Jota and that would be Fabinho. And Jasmine, from an Arsenal perspective, what do you make of this game? I know it's not a nice thing to talk about, but do you think it was a just a write-off, a bad day at the office, or maybe a symptom of a wider problem? I think it was a write-off from when we all found out the news, both Emil Smith, oh, not even both, um, all three of Granite Xhaka, Emil Smith-Rowe and Bukayo Saka were all injured and missed this game. I think that was the point I wrote it off. I um, don't think there was that, there was nothing really made of the match. Uh, there's a real massive stat going around with both Lacazette and Aubameyang playing when they play together, they've lost something ridiculous like seven of their last 10 matches that they've started together structure doesn't really work with both of them in the team um and I just think it was just a bit too much of a task without probably three of your best performing players in the system we have to miss that game against defending champions no matter how many injuries Liverpool have um Arsenal are a very structured team and that double pivot of Thomas Parsi and Danny Spiros just wouldn't have worked in, I don't think, in most games. So it was a really hard task from the start. Then you have to add in that um, Tierney came off as Cedric Schwarz and and I think even, I mean, it was still nil-nil and then, what, a minute later after taking Danny Ceballos for... Um, Mohamed Elneny we concede I just don't think it was the right personnel for the day um I know we can be a little bit weaker against bigger teams but that really cut us a massive handicap um I think it's very unlucky that we have that many problems and we have to rely on um probably our second string (laughs) it's just not really fair and then, of course, across London, um, another team took a heavy beating, Chelsea losing 5-2 to West Brom at Stamford Bridge. Um, I think you might maybe enjoy talking about this a little bit more, Jasmine. Um, but, of course, you do have sympathies with Thomas Tuchel. Um, what do you make of this game? And are you irritated by some of the kind of triumphalism or this kind of welcome to the Premier League uh, nonsense that a lot of people have been coming out oh, with? Oh, yeah, Stop it. He didn't win in I mean, he won the DFB Pokal. Do they not watch the 
Bundesliga. It's the most unpredictable league out of all of them, apart from whoever wins, obviously. But, you know, the rest of it, it's really unpredictable. But did Bayern not lose 5-1 to um, Frankfurt to get Kovac out? Like, you know, it's just really, really stupid that comes from commentators who don't actually know what they're doing and get paid for mediocrity. Um, but on Tuchel, you know, the same kind of people who've attacked him in Germany are now doing it in British media, so it's not really surprising some of the lines that came out of the British media about it. But, you know, look at all the things Tuchel has done. I mean, I don't think he was expecting to have Thiago Silva get a red card and then (laughs) trying to claw back all the mistakes and... I think it just kind of ruined his day. You can't argue against the systems he's put in at Chelsea, which has made them such a force to be reckoned with in the Champions League, you know. And it was just a bad day at the office. Um, What will be interesting is how they bounce back for this. It's their first loss. They've got Champions League this week. Um, What exactly they do... Um, But yeah, I don't think it's anything to actually worry about or take further notes from. It was just a bad red card and trying to fight back. He went all out to get the win and that's why he ended up conceding so many. I think it was 30% of the goals conceded under Tuchel has been from West Brom, which is crazy. I think it might have been more now, maybe 40 John, I think you have an interesting stat about that game. Yeah, so West Brom scored eight times against Chelsea this season. They drew three all with them at the beginning of the campaign. And uh, <laughs> they have eight goals against them from an XG of 2.12 this season. So, Jesus. Yeah. You talk about hot streaks, <laughs> and that is the textbook definition of a hot streak. But at least Ireland's Callum Robinson uh, scored twice. So, you know... That's uh, that's something that we can clutch onto, Alan. We can really, really clutch at that straw. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Chelsea travels to Portugal this week to play Porto. Um, what are your thoughts on this game, John? Do you think that'll be a straightforward tie for Chelsea, or do you think that Porto could offer them? Something? I don't think it will be straightforward. I think it will be a tie that will be decided by probably one or two goals over the course of the two legs. Um, Porto are very defensively obstinate and solid. They they play a 4-4-2 deep block and they have the likes of Pepe who will put his head anywhere to defend for the cause. So, And Chelsea under Tuchel have been very defensively solid, but they haven't been the most uh, free-scoring of teams. So while I expect Chelsea to win this tie and to progress to the semi-final, I don't think it will be a blowout in any way, shape or form. And we'll finish something like 3-1 or aggregate or, or 2-1 aggregate. I, I don't envision loads of goals in this. Porto really showed against Juventus that uh, they have a really good, as much as it's an intangible, they have a really good spirit there and a really good uh, camaraderie between the players. So I don't think Chelsea will uh, will progress comfortably, but I expect them to go through. A much more maybe finely balanced tie, you could say, is taking place uh, the same night, Bayern Munich versus Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, PSG lost 1-0 to Lille at the weekend. Neymar was sent off and uh, had a bit of a scuffle in the tunnel post-game. I don't know if you guys saw it, but uh, he had to be held back um, from his opposite number. They were both sent off at the same time. Uh, funny scenes. Um, 
But they're playing Bayern Munich, and Bayern Munich, of course, uh, beat Leipzig 1-0. Big result for them, Jasmine. Um, what's the kind of feeling coming from Germany ahead of this game? And like, how confident do you think Bayern are about their chances in the European Cup this season? I think they'll be very confident. I think if you've got experience winning titles and coming off a year that you've won everything, you are naturally more confident. And you have carry that experience with you into the game. I think what is a little bit nerve-wracking for Bayern is obviously they don't have Lewandowski. He's out for at least another round four weeks. And that game against Leipzig well, was quite worrying at times for them. Um, the first the, the first 15 minutes of either half, Leipzig were quite controlling off the ball. And you wonder if Leipzig had a better finisher in the squad, they could have done more against Bayern and made the title race a little bit more interesting. What's funny about Bayern is that some of the players take t- tactical decisions among themselves and not off the word of Hansi Flick. Like you have Goretzka and uh, Kimmich just kind of swapping sides and they've double pivot, which ultimately worked against Leipzig, but they will also switch back at the wrong times. And I think it will be very even. And this is the thing with the way Bayern played against Leipzig, you could think PSG could get an advantage over them. But then you see PSG and their bad results and their kind of structures. And you're like, mm, no, even Bayern without Lewandowski can probably take their experience of winning re- recently and get the upper hand. So I think it'll be closer than basically what it has been between them if you take them in separate entities. And PSG won't have Ferrati either. John, um, for you, what are your thoughts on this tie? As Jasmine just mentioned, I think PSG not having Ferrati is I don't know if it's comparable to Bayern not having Lewandowski, but it is it is a big blow. I think if you look at their midfield, the likes of Danilo Pereira and uh, Leandro Paredes, they're, they're they're grand players, they're decent, but they're not the guys that you would expect, you know, to really give you the platform to win in a in a knockout stage Champions League tie up directly up against the likes of Joshua Kimmich and and Leon Goretzka. So I think that is a big blow to to PSG. Uh, like I mentioned, Bayern don't have uh, Lewandowski, but you know they still have so much firepower in in, in reserve with uh, with Coman and with Sané and with Nabry. So I think I think I fancy Bayern in this. Although I think Kylian Mbappe will be licking his lips at the prospect of coming up against uh, against Bayern's high line. So I envision it being high scoring, but I think Bayern just have too much about them for this for this PSG side, and, and I think I think they'll go through. We mentioned Lian Gretzka, uh, one of the pod's favourite men. Um, another one who is frequently mentioned, but maybe not as favourite for Jasmine at least, is Unai Emery. Um, but Villarreal won 3-0 against Granada at the weekend. Very good result. Uh, they're playing Dynamo Zagreb in their first leg of the Europa League quarterfinal this week um, in Croatia. Uh, Granada are, going, are hosting Manchester United um, in Andalusia. Uh, interesting game there for sure Ajax playing Roma and Arsenal playing Slavia Praha uh, Jasmine what are your thoughts on this kind of round of fixtures and uh, who do you fancy to come through probably 
any Unai Emery squad, he could leave Villarreal, join someone else and still win the Europa, even if they weren't even qualified for Europa. He's like a zombie that won't die <laughs> in the Europa League. Um, I feel kind of good against Arsenal versus Slavia Praha. Um, it depends on injuries and I know I shouldn't have confidence in Arsenal, but you'd think that they would go through from that. Um, they do seem to have kind, some kind of pedigree in Europa League compared to um, other tournaments. So, yeah, it should be another straightforward win. Uh, I think it should be another straightforward win, but um, Arsenal don't like to do that. In terms of Manchester United, I, I'm i not sure about them. I, I don't... I don't know. I think Granada can be quite a uh, tricky team for them. Um, And I think it's because more... We've seen how Man United adopt tactics to bigger teams, especially AC Milan. And I think Granada pose a bit of a threat to them. Uh, But I'm really, really looking forward to Ajax Roma. And that should be, I'm hoping, quite an open game. And I can't pick out a winner from that one. It's quite strange that we're at the quarterfinals already. I mean, that's the same stage where the mini tournaments that took place in Germany and Europa League and Lisbon in the Champions League took place during lockdown last summer. It feels like much longer than a year ago or much shorter than a year ago in many ways. It's a strange one. Um, but John, what are your thoughts on this run of Europa League games? Yeah, um, I think Arsenal really need to start putting all their eggs in that basket because they're 150% not going to qualify for the Champions League. Via, via the league um, I think financially it, it's an imperative for them to try and get there and uh, I think they'll have too much for Slavia Prague I've actually I've actually watched Prague a bit this season because they've played both Leicester and Rangers and they're very kind of a stodgy team they, they play on the counter-attack they're, they're well organized but uh, I think if Arsenal gets Smith Rowe and Saka back then they'll have they'll have too much quality for them over the course of two legs and Hopefully they go through. Also, uh, they didn't ingratiate themselves to me with the whole racism Ferrari with Rangers playing Glenn Kamara. So um, from that vantage point as well, I just actually really hope that Slavia Prague exit the tournament. I have uh, I have no love for them whatsoever based, based on that. Um, I think United, United are, are a strange team. They rarely ever convince you, but they, they have the firepower to beat every team. So just... Just based on that, they should. I think they should have too much for Granada over two legs, and I think Granada are really playing with house money at this stage. I don't think anyone really expects them to get as far as they have, and you know maybe maybe they'll find that they get nosebleeds being this far advanced in the competition. You know they're 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 a small club with don't have ma- massive tradition. So, uh, oh, but I guess also the the opposite effect could be true where they feel like they have no pressure. But uh, I would expect. United to advance, Roma, Ajax, as Jasmine said, I think that would be that would be a very 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 good tie. Roma play play nice football. They play an interesting like a three four three shape when they they really try and play out from the back and they don't have a whole lot of pace if you look at their attacking line with like Zeko, uh, Pedro, and Mkhitaryan, but they're all very technically sound players. So I'd envision that being being a very good game. And and the other one, yeah, Unai Emery will probably do his regular his regular feat, and Villarreal uh, will probably beat Dinamo Zagreb and uh, advance through. And I mean, he just has such 
as I just said earlier about Sergio Ramos having knockout muscle memory in the Champions League, well, Unai Emery wrote the book on how to win the Europa League. And uh, I, I somehow feel that Zagreb might have peaked in, in the Spurs game and it would be hard for them to reach those heights again in terms of performance. So I'd certainly envision Villarreal uh, progressing through in that tie. Yeah, I think with Granada, I think I agree with you. I mean, they're definitely uh, kind of in uncharted territory right now. But I think the character of this team, it's quite a strong team mentality-wise. And the coach, Diego Martinez, is very, very adept and skilled at getting the best out of his players. So I think that they'll be looking at it like that, but from a positive perspective. It's a free hit for them. They already have made history. No matter what happens, they're already living the best moment of their history. It's the first time ever even competing in European competition. So the chances of them actually getting to a semi-final are so slim that they'll approach it with absolutely zero fear because they're already heroes. Um, but Jasmine wants to come in there. Um, just a point. like It's not the Europa League if we don't get an Arsenal Villarreal uh, Arteta versus Emery <laughs> narrative, which will happen if both teams win this um, this round. But also on one of something that John said that um, Arsenal probably wouldn't. Well, that's, Arsenal won't make Champions League in the league. What I find still absolutely amazing, though, is that there are only nine points off fourth place Chelsea. How we're only seven points off fifth place Tottenham. This this year's league, because of Corona and everyone's kind of ability level, is mad. And I have no idea what's going to happen next. It's great. It's on that point because Everton are playing Crystal Palace this evening. And if they win, uh, they've got a 49 points, which means they'll draw level with Spurs with a game in hand. And there'd be just two points behind Chelsea with a game in hand, which is uh, really quite crazy, do you know? Um, so I think it definitely happened this season and it's still the case it seems um, but yeah I just want to touch on a question a point that John made sorry about uh, racism in, in football uh, and the incident with the Slavia Praha player uh, and Glenn Camara of Rangers there was also an incident in Spain during the weekend yesterday between Cadiz and Valencia Cadiz won the game 2-1 but it was, put, it was kind of interrupted in the 30th minute because a Cadiz player uh, allegedly uh, called um, Mukhtar Diakabe of Valencia, uh, which is pretty uh, pretty bad, as you can imagine. Um, I just wanted to ask you what you think about racism in football, each of you, and what you think of what's being done. Like what happened in this scenario was that the Valencia players walked off the pitch led by Diakabe and then were basically told in the dressing room during the kind of interval that if they didn't go back on the pitch, they have to forfeit the match because what was said was alleged it couldn't be proved. So what do you think about this, John? And what do you think the solution is? And what do you think needs to be done and what needs to be taken place to kind of maybe improve the situation in the future? Well, I think that it's it, it's a microcosm of society, unfortunately, and it's it, it's endemic in football. It's, it's sad to say, but it, it's everywhere. And I think sometimes people from certain countries, say England, for example, like to like look down on maybe Balkans countries or Latin countries and say, oh, it's far worse there. But it, unfortunately, it, it exists everywhere and it, it's prominent everywhere. Um, I have major respect for the Valencia players who, who, who took that call to walk off in solidarity with Diakabe. And I mean, if, if it comes to that, that they might have to forfeit points, well then, I mean, I think it's a necessary step because... 
this is a big problem and you won't you won't do anything to change the course of history by only taking small piecemeal steps you really need to you really need to make a, a big show of it and to i don't i don't know if it will ever be solved so to speak but i certainly think that people can be educated about it and you can definitely make a contribution uh, towards the betterment of, of of conditions for black players and of, of all ethnic minority players for that matter so um I, I just have a major respect for Valencia for doing that. Unfortunately, they had to they had to come back and play. But I think it's it's another high profile example of racism in football. And I think as an association, as difficult as as it may be, UEFA really need to crack down on it and start to maybe give point deductions to fans or players of teams who are who are who are seen to be who seem to be doing that. I mean, I, I don't think it'll solve like the 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 psychological issues in the mind of people who who espouse these views but it'll certainly i think help you know eliminate it from being said in the first place or, or, so to speak very sad sight to see the akabe um on the bench for the second half just by himself uh while the game's going on uh, well the person who allegedly uh said the insult was continuing playing until he was taken off at halftime but very unseemly situation for sure uh jasmine what's your take i think i have that Firstly, echo what John said. It's a reflection of society and it's a reflection on many societies where black and people of colour are the ethnic minority in their country. And it comes from a massive misunderstanding and ways to keep people of colour down. I'm a person of colour myself and I can see it just doesn't only happen on the pitches. It happens with fans of clubs. There's a massive problem. It's it's an endemic everywhere. It's an endemic in society. And if it's happening in life all the time, it's going to happen in football all the time. Um, I think UEFA definitely need to step up, but I have no faith in them being a majority white old man's club from the top down and everything they do it like kind of supports that I think we can go through uh, especially with racist fans the fines that the clubs get and the punishment compared to um I think the main one that sticks in my head when Man City booed the UEFA anthem at Champions League match or when Nicholas Bentner in the Denmark match showed his Paddy Power underwear. Um, both greater fines than many other ones that were due to racist chanting. Um, so if it's from the top down, it will always be from the top down. UEFA really needs to step it up. It's not about banners with respect the game if you're, the players on the pitch aren't even respecting that. Um, there needs to be greater bands, greater education, um, and that's the way it can really, really get knuckled down. But also clubs need to take control of their own fan bases. If society is failing and football is a big part of that society, they should also step up why it racism is bad because some people have lacked the understanding or the education of why there's people different to them they it needs to be 
conscious learning from everyone and everyone needs to step up and do it. And if that means clubs taking responsibility of their own fans, I think there was one tweet from Arsenal saying stop online abuse. That's great, but I could point out three Arsenal fans with season tickets aiming at disgusting abuse at people. You need to take greater greater responsibility for your own fans and do actually do something about it because without that step from loads of people nothing will be done and we will see more incidents of this absolutely it's uh, certainly a massive problem a uh, difficult one to resolve but let's hope that um situations like the one that unfolded on saturday or on sunday rather where the players were basically forced to come out on the pitch without the player who had been insulted and been abused. Uh, it doesn't happen again because I think that's just uh, despicable. Uh, so Newcastle drew two all with Spurs uh, during the weekend. Jasmine, I know you have some thoughts on this one. Uh, what do you make of it, and uh, what do you make of um, the job Jose Jose is doing at Spurs? I first have to absolutely commend Steve Bruce in that match. Steve Bruce rightly gets a lot of stick and um, I think that's the best I've seen his team play. Absolutely. They had an XG of something like three and I don't think that's happened in the the modern era of post-1900s. So it was one of the best that I've ever seen them play. I I still don't really like John Joe Shelby. I don't think he's a great player. I don't think he's much of a Premier League player. But I think then with Dwight Gale, Ping on Saint Maximin, then having Joe Willick come on and obviously parent club is awesome, come on and score against North London Rivals Tottenham is an amazing feat for them, who especially them near the relegation zone it was a great entertaining match and when you see that on the fixture list you might think oh god that's going to be a one nil to Tottenham and Jose Mourinho play absolutely defensively um and that being said I guess that's a little bit what Tottenham did until uh nearer to the end of the game they obviously went 2-1 up and then just kind of sat back and dropped off a little bit and, um, you know, they just basically got matched toe-to-toe from Newcastle. And, again, it kind of shows up Jose Mourinho once again, who, you know, at the start of the season, he was like, I've got all the players I want. And now, again, he's throwing them under the bus after a result doesn't go his way. All that isn't lost for Jose Mourinho. They are only two points behind fourth place, but the thing is he's in a mix with all other teams. Liverpool, West Ham, I didn't think I'd ever be saying that in my life. Um, Everton. Um, But the next match is against Manchester United, who somehow are unbeaten and have our own three wins on a trot. But, yeah, it it kind of then pulls out all the fans who are anti-Mourinho on why have they done this. And a lot of it lies on them beating Man City in the the cup final, the League Cup final. So, yeah, I, I, again, it was, it was a fantastic display from Newcastle who really, really put it out there. 
Absolutely. And John, I know you've a stat uh, on hand about Spurs and their propensity to concede uh, late goals. Oh man, it feels like Groundhog Day because I, I, I think that every time I've been on this podcast in the last few months, it's the conversation has basically been, yeah, Spurs sat in the lead, they played too conservatively and it came back to bite them. And uh, I think we kind of have something that, that proves that as such. So they've conceded nine goals after the 80th minute in the league this season. And eight of those have been winners or equalizers for the opposition. So they, they have a real habit of maybe just sitting back too much and ceding the initiative to, to teams. And invariably, they've been punished for it. They were punished for it in the Europa League as well, a competition that I thought they would be in with a good chance of winning. So <laughs> it was classic Mourinho um, kind of deflection tactics after the game where a BBC journalist asked him, you used to be so good at holding leads and why can't you hold leads anymore? And he goes, "Same, it's the same coach, but uh, different players. So once again, like not taking any responsibility whatsoever for the poor results. And I think that Spurs really had a great chance this season of making the top four. They, they still might because it, it's very hard to call, but I don't think they've been afflicted by injuries like in any way, shape, or form, like they're like they're opposite, uh, like the teams are competing against Barkane, missing a, a couple of weeks. I, I think they have quite a deep squad as well, and they pushed the boat out last summer. So I think ultimately the buck stops with Mourinho, and uh, a lot of what's been wrong with them this season, you know, fall, falls at, at his feet. I think I don't think he can really explain it away and blame the players for it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I wanted to speak as well, John, about uh, Juve Torino. Uh, Juve dropped points yet again, losing two to drawing two two um, with their city rivals um, away from home. Um, what what do you make of this game, and what do you make of Juve's kind of turmoils in general? Yeah, it was actually quite quite an entertaining game. The narrative that Syria is boring is absolute nonsense. There's actually a lot of goals scored across the Syria, and a lot of interesting. Interesting, enterprising attacking football played by several teams, uh, most notably Atalanta, I think. So it, it, it was another example of that, this game. Um, Juventus draw a lot. They've, they've drawn eight times this season. And now they find themselves only only in the top four on goal difference um, ahead of Napoli. So, I mean, it, it, seems, it seems nearly impossible for them to drop out of top four contention. But, I mean... You know, would you say you'd be that surprised based off the way they've performed this season? And it, there would be a beautiful irony to it, of course, because Andrea Agnelli has been politicking to change the structure of the Champions League. But it would be it would be actually quite hilarious if they managed to not qualify for it in maybe one of the last seasons where it's been conducted within these parameters and you need to finish in a top four to get there. So I nearly think the. I nearly think the petty little man inside me would like to see Juventus not qualify for the Champions League just based on based on that. I think there would be a lovely a lovely irony to it. Um, I think we're probably as well in the end days of Cristiano Ronaldo uh, in Turin. Whether whether that's been a successful uh, stint for him in the north of Italy, I think is maybe open to interpretation. I think he's done quite well as a player, um, but the team itself haven't necessarily achieved massively despite the fact that they won the the Scudetto under Maurizio Sarri but I think that's that's par for the course for Juventus so whether whether you can deem his his spell there a success or not is is up to you but I think certainly it might be in his final throws and I wouldn't be surprised if uh if he went back to Real Madrid this summer so uh I think Inter are going to run away with uh with the Serie A title but uh aside from that it's very competitive only 
only four points separates Napoli in fifth and Milan in second. So, and then Lazio uh, bring up the rear in in sixth place, uh, only four points off Champions League football. So, between now and the end of the season, I think it, it could be quite competitive, and the configuration of the of the Italian top four will be interesting to see. Absolutely. Also competitive in Spain. Uh, Sevilla beat Atletico 1-0 last night uh, to really kind of, you know, open up the title race even further uh, and kind of consolidate their fourth position. They're well clear of um, of Real Sociedad in fifth now. Uh, Barcelona are playing Real Valladolid this evening. Um, and if they win that game, they go just a point behind Atletico. Uh, and they're still to play Atletico. So now the situation is basically that Barcelona, if they win all their games they have remaining, they win La Liga. Uh, similarly, if Real Madrid beat them in a Clasico, uh, it's kind of turned in its head again. So there's really lots of interesting things happening in Spain, for sure, to keep an eye on over the next few weeks. Very, very open three-horse race there. Um, elsewhere in Spain, uh, Real Sociedad beat Atletico Club uh, 1-0 in the Copa del Rey final at La Cartuja in Seville on Saturday night. Um Kind of 63rd minute penalty from Mikel Oriazabal, uh, captain Mikel Oriazabal, giving them the victory over their Basque rivals, uh, the first ever Basque derby to take place in the Copa del Rey final. Um, so a fascinating spectacle. Athletic, of course, are returning to La Cartuja in two weeks' time to play Barcelona in the 2021 final because that was the 2020 final postponed the year to enable fans to attend. Of course, that wasn't possible, but uh, hopefully by 2022 it will be possible. Um, all things going well. Um, but that's pretty much this week's uh, European football. Um, we'll be back next Monday evening uh, for another roundup to break down the Champions League games and the Europa League games. Uh, thanks a million for joining me, guys. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Uh, Jasmine, I'll start with you. Yep, underscore on Twitter, sorry, underscore Jasmine Barber, where you can find my latest pieces and other stuff. Fantastic. Sounds mysterious. Um, John, what about you? Gluttons for punishment can find me on Twitter at NotoriousJOS. I should have some pieces in the coming days on Anfield Index. And uh, just looking forward to another week of uh, jam-packed football and ahead of uh, our next podcast. Fantastic, fantastic. I'm certainly looking forward to it. I'm sure you are as well. Uh, to all your listeners, if you enjoyed this, please uh, recommend and share it with your friends to help us grow and expand our network. Also, please subscribe and rate uh, every episode. Um, but thanks guys we'll see you soon and have a good week